If it were several weeks ago, and I were to stand up here in front of you, and I said, he is risen, you would have said what? But now when I stand up here and I say, he is ascended, you say, only because I set you up. <laughs> now I understand that some of you might be looking through your copy of the liturgical calendar and noticing that Thursday was Ascension Thursday, and this is therefore Ascension Sunday, even though that's predicated on a different Easter and a 40-day gap in between, and you might be asking yourself, is that why you're preaching on the Ascension this morning? And the answer is no, but I had always been wanting to do a message on the Ascension, and this was a great excuse. The Ascension is perhaps one of the least appreciated pivotal events in the earthly incarnate ministry of Jesus Christ. We are able to celebrate his return and look forward to it, not only because of the resurrection, but because of the ascension. Uh, there is no need for a return had there not been a departure. Is that clear enough? The resurrection is not that from which he will return. It's the ascension to the right hand of the Father, to that seat of power and authority, all authority granted to him. It is from that place that he will return bodily in the same Shekinah glory cloud that he left. And that's the focus of our attention in God's Word this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please open them to Acts chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can take the Pew Bible in front of you. Turn to 909. It'd be helpful if you could follow along with what we're preaching. 909. Acts 1, 1 to 11. This is God's Word. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. To them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, he asked them, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? 
this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. The Ascension, the Kingdom, and Why It Matters. It's the title of the message this morning, The Ascension, the Kingdom, and Why It Even Matters. All of this account is situated within a two-volume history that was written by a physician named Luke. In your copy of the New Testament, it's broken down into Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and Acts. However, if you were to look at these together, you might see how they fit. They are the ongoing story. They are one message in two volumes simply because of the size. And what you have here is the historical record, not only of Jesus' birth and ministry, but also of what happened after he ascended, namely the spread of the Christian faith. And what's important to realize is that this book was actually commissioned by somebody. His name is Theophilus. He's mentioned there at the beginning of Acts as well as at the beginning of Luke. Theophilus, it's a name that means lover of God. Uh, He's a Gentile. He's obviously somebody that is worthy of respect and honor. He's called, oh, great Theophilus. I mean, he's uh, lauded as somebody of great dignity. He's also somebody who likely had a lot of means. Uh, It wasn't uh, cheap to hire somebody, uh, to go and do the research in order to produce for you a historical account of something like the Christian faith. But this is exactly what he did. And so Theophilus used his wealth in order to be a patron of Luke so that Luke could write a history of Christ and the early church. And just for a moment, isn't that a wonderful use of his funds? I know sometimes Christians think, well, I guess the Bible is really hard on on rich people, and and we should look at them as if uh, maybe they're uh, not to be trusted. But no, Scripture is clear. If the Lord chooses to bless you with material resources, you should receive that from Him and and appreciate that and, and use it for His glory. But what a wonderful way to use it. I mean, here, Theophilus, far from being criticized for being a man of wealth, in fact, if anything, uh, he's being commended here by Luke for using those resources so that we today, hundreds of years later, can have this accurate account of what went on in the early church. Now, draw your attention back to it for a moment because I want you to notice that in this account, there are several things that only appear here and nowhere else. In fact, if you're wondering what would have maybe caused Theophilus to say we need to have one of these accounts, it goes like this. No matter what you believe about which gospel was written first, you know, most people say it was Mark, others say it was Matthew. Either way, those particular gospel accounts almost make it seem as if um, the ascension never happened. I mean, there's no real reference to it any particular way. And you might say, well, I read the end of Mark and it seems to be there, but if you know anything about uh, textual uh, analysis, that last part of Mark, there should be a note in your Bible, it's, it's probably not part of the original inspired text. So you'd almost think that, that Jesus has sort of come onto the scene in his 30s, he has a ministry, and then he rises from the dead, gives his followers a commission, and that's it. What Luke does is Luke goes all the way back, and Luke incorporates some things that the others didn't. For example, uh, some of the very early birth narratives 
Uh, the fact that an angel came and, and, and presented himself to Mary to say what was going to happen to her. He is the one who tells us about Mary and Joseph taking him and offering the sacrifice when he was eight days old. It's Luke who tells us about the ministry he had in the temple. Remember when he was 12 and his parents left to go back home and, and he was there in the temple teaching all of these scholars from the scriptures? There are no less than 16 parables that only Luke includes, four healings, one of which was the 10 lepers, so I guess it's closer to 13 or 14. He's the only one who talks about the road to Emmaus, and he is the only one who specifically outlines the ascension, both at the end of Luke and at the beginning of Acts. It's critically important for the early church to understand that their risen and ascended Lord was the one that they were worshiping. And so what I'd like to do this morning is take a look at this first uh, 11 verses or so, and we're going to evaluate the text by asking four questions this morning. Just four questions. They're going to arise from the text, either explicitly or implicitly, and that's how we're going to unpack it. So, four questions. Uh, number one is, is the question of when. And that's the question that gets asked in verse 6. Take a look at it. The disciples, uh, upon hearing that Jesus had received all authority from the Father, that everything now belongs to him, that he is now going to establish, since he's come into that very last phase of his ministry, going, going to establish that, that kingdom. Their question to him is very simple. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Somebody said there are as many errors in that question as there are words. They had a very temporal perspective. They wanted it now. They had a very human perspective. Uh, this was a little bit of revenge politics going on. They wanted Jesus, now that he was resurrected, to come back and finally wipe out those Romans like he was supposed to do the first time. And when he comes into power, no doubt, they were the ones who were going to be elevated to all the top cabinet positions. Well, not only did they have the timing wrong and the human nature of it wrong, but they also had a very... Zionistic, Israel-centered perspective. He said, are you going to restore the kingdom who? To Israel. You see, it wasn't about now, and it wasn't about them, and it wasn't about Israel. What they had wanted was a political kingdom all along. That was one of the things that bothered them so much about the fact that when Jesus came, he didn't topple the government like they thought he would. But Jesus here is quick to say, it's not about a kingdom coming now. It's not about a kingdom coming in a physical sense at this moment. But rather, he says, I want you to see that it's the beginning of something that I'm going to ask you to go and do. It's the beginning of a commission, the beginning of an assignment, you might even say. And so the next uh, question I want to answer is the question of, of what? Well, then what do we do? Look down at the following section there, beginning in verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the reason. The reason why they are not to expect a kingdom at this moment is because 
the very kingdom of God in a spiritual sense is what is going to advance around the globe by the power of the Holy Spirit and the faithfulness of their witness. Two points to remember. The power of the Holy Spirit, the faithfulness of their witness. That's the answer. None of this is going to be able to happen unless the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's why you need to go back and wait, and in a very short time, the Holy Spirit will come upon you in a very visible way. It's going to be a very powerful manifestation. There's going to be no doubt about it. The Holy Spirit has come. He calls the baptizing by the Holy Spirit and immersing into the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit being poured out over you. And this is all going to happen so that you've got the power that you need to go and be a faithful witness for me around the world. That's very interesting. The power of the Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they have the ability now, in his strength, to take this to the ends of the earth. The question you might be asking is, well, was that accomplished, or is that something that is still to be done? Let's take a look. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. We're just going to go to a few texts here that will help to explain it. Acts chapter 6 and verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in where? Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Amazing. Uh, It's the word of God that spreads. It's the word of the gospel that spreads. And it became very popular in Jerusalem. That was the first starting point, Jerusalem. And and what's interesting is that it wasn't only reaching the Jewish people and they were becoming disciples, but it says here that it even was powerful enough to change the hearts of the priests, the very people who were in the religious establishment. Even they were getting saved. Even they were putting their faith in Christ. Jerusalem was becoming the very epicenter of the gospel message. And as God often does, he brings something in to disturb what was happening within that particular city in order that the gospel may go further. And so now look over at chapter 8 and verse 1 of Acts. within the context of persecution. We read about a man named Saul, who would later be known as Paul. Same man. And Saul approved of his execution, speaking of Stephen. And there arose in that day a great persecution against the church in, where? Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The apostles, they uh, sort of battened down the hatches, and they stayed in Jerusalem. Uh, They saw the martyrdom of Stephen. They understood what the cost was, but they were going to stay there in Jerusalem, and they were going to continue to support that fledgling church. But because of the persecution that came upon the people, they began to get scattered. And when these Christians were scattered by persecution. They ended up in all sorts of regions, including Judea and Samaria. And guess what? They brought with them the Holy Spirit-empowered witness of the gospel. So we've already got Jerusalem. We've got Judea and Samaria. So the next question is, well, what about the ends of the earth? Well, I have an answer for you. It's in Acts. Go to 13. Acts 13. 
want you to look over at uh, verse 48. We'll pick it up about halfway through verse 48. So, or 46, I'm sorry. Acts 13, 46. Uh, Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are going to the Gentiles. Verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying... Now he quotes the prophet Isaiah. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth represented in the gospel that goes forward to the Gentiles. How do they respond to it? I love the way this ends in verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. All the elect in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all these elect Gentiles, fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. Now, let's ask a question. How many times have you been at a church during the missions conference where somebody says to you, The way we're to understand this is that your town is Jerusalem and the neighboring villages would be Samaria and Judea and the ends of the earth are the missionaries that go far away to preach the gospel. Uh, This understanding of Acts would clarify that that sort of teaching is not accurate. It's actually a little bit arrogant to think that we're the Jerusalem, we're the center of it all, and the ends of the earth, some place out in Asia or Africa, as a matter of fact, you know anything about history and geography, that's where the gospel started. We are the ends of the earth. Nobody was thinking about California. (laughs) Nobody was even thinking about America. In fact, a couple hundred years ago, even people in America weren't thinking about California. We are the ends of the earth. We are the people furthest away from the gospel. I know some of you visiting California are like, amen, brother, you preach it. (laughs) You... You are a crazy group of pagan headhunters out here. I can't wait to get out. I know what you're thinking. I can see it on your face. The gospel is successful. Jesus says to them, here's the, here's the what. Forget about the when. Forget about trying to make it your, your own sort of political kingdom. I mean, does that sound familiar today? People want to take the gospel message and turn it into uh, something they can use to advance their political agenda. He says, I have no political agenda. I have a gospel agenda. I've got an eternal agenda. I've got an agenda that's going to change the heart. That's what these Gentiles did. Those who were chosen of God believed. Mission accomplished. The reason why Theophilus was asking for this account to be given is that maybe he had doubts. He's writing several years after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. He wants to know these things. He wants the facts. He's not interested just in passionate preaching or fairy tales He wants to know the facts. He is somebody, I believe, who had a very rational, reasoning, analytical mind. And he wanted facts. If he is going to put his life on the line, his resources on the line, I want to know this is true. I love the fact that as we sang earlier this morning, you might not have noticed it, but we sang about the fact that we have a reason for what we believe. There is reason in what we believe. 
And this brings us to the next point, and this one is more or less inferred from the text, but it's the how. How is all of this accomplished? How do we know all of this is true? How do we know that they were successful? The answer is that in the commissioning of this work, Theophilus required of Luke eyewitness testimony. So you can imagine like this. I don't know if any of you have ever had to write for a grant, to get a grant from a foundation or from the government in order to do your research. But it's, it's almost like this. Imagine that there was this uh, prospectus put out there that, that Theophilus is going to offer a research grant to somebody who will come in and, and who will fastidiously and carefully and rationally list out for him not only the history of the life of Jesus Christ, but also what has been going on in the world since the time that the gospel began to spread from Jerusalem through Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth through the Gentiles. And the person who applies for this grant is a man named Luke. He's a physician. And he says, I'll do it. Now, he's not the first one to have done it. Mark may have already done it. Matthew already done it. Matthew, though, was an eyewitness. John would do it in the future. John was an eyewitness. Luke was not an eyewitness. But Luke had to go out there and get eyewitnesses. He had to do the field work, the hard work, the interviews. And in those days, you didn't have a tape recorder or your phone. He had to write this down. But everything he wrote down, all of these accounts that you have in Luke-Acts, came from his research. In fact, Theophilus, I'm sure, was not the kind of person who was going to be satisfied just with somebody's testimony. He wanted credible eyewitnesses, and that's exactly what you get. So the question that the disciples asked was when, and Jesus had to correct them. Uh, Jesus said, you should be asking what is going on here, and then he explains it. Theophilus, he's really concerning himself with how all of this is even going to happen. And that leads us to the last question, and that is why. Why is all this happening? And the two are really tied together, because if you, if you go back and you look at the beginning part of Acts 1, go back there to where we were, Acts 1, 1 to 11, that first part is really the explanation to Theophilus. This is what I've done. This is why I've done it. Uh, this is what you could expect in this particular volume. This is what happened when the Holy Spirit came. This is where the power came from. Uh, this is the difference between the baptism of John the Baptist and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All of this is the factual background, but when he goes into this last section here and the why of it, it's because it was based on these eyewitness accounts. And just before we get into that, give me give you one more reference here, just, just to kind of plead my case, maybe. Uh, go to chapter 5 and verse 29 through 32. Because this really sums it up, what was going on. Acts 5, 29 to 32. But Peter and the apostles answered, this is during their arrest, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. He says, we are those witnesses 
If you want to know how this is happening, it's because we eyewitnesses are involved in delivering the truth of this message. And that's really the whole foundation for verses 9 to 11. Take a look at it. This is the actual ascension. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now, before we go on with the rest of this, I want to talk about something. And I was debating whether or not to talk about this today. Because some of you have never even thought of this. And I don't want to cause you to question something you shouldn't question. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought it would be helpful to cover this issue. And so we're going to right now. You may have noticed earlier in the reading that Luke did out of Luke, that at the very end of the gospel, chapter 24, there is a statement in verse 51 that Jesus ascended. And if you were to read Luke and you were to look at it in a purely chronological way, you would conclude that there was a resurrection, there was some instruction, and on that very same day, there was an ascension. That Jesus appeared to his disciples, raised from the dead, and then he ascended later that day. And that is the position that some people take. They say that's what happened based on the chronology in Luke, and so all the other accounts that we have of Jesus post-resurrection happened during that 40-day period, but it was him coming back after he had already ascended. The other view is that there was a 40-day span in between when Jesus rose from the dead and when he ascended. If you read Luke, you arrive at one conclusion. You read Acts, you arrive at another. And if you're reading them back-to-back, Luke 24 and then Acts 1, it may be especially alarming He seems to be saying two different things. So how do we reconcile that? Well, my answer is that scholars who are really, really proficient in this particular area of study have disagreed about this for a long time. So I'm not going to be able to resolve it today. Let's start with what we do know for sure. We know for sure he ascended. We know for sure that's a historical fact. Uh, We know that from the account in Luke that there's some debate as to whether or not the second half of verse 51 is supposed to be in there. There are some manuscripts, Greek manuscripts, that when they were edited along the way, some have that in there and some don't. So maybe that's one of the ways you can build a case against it. Other than that, there really isn't much else to say, except that it's out there. It's a question. It could very well be that Jesus ascended and then he came back for various appearings. There's nothing saying he couldn't have done that. But it's also possible that between his resurrection and ascension, he spent 40 days on this earth, or maybe commuting, having various conversations with his disciples. What it boils down to is this. I know for sure beyond a shadow of a doubt, based on the historic record and the evidence that he ascended to the place of authority at the right hand of the Father. That's what we know. And that's why the why is so important. Because as you see in the next part of this section, let's pick it up in verse 10, and while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, Whenever you see two men standing in white robes, your normal conclusion is that they were angels. So so imagine the drama here. 
You've got the disciples. They're standing. They've been blessed by Jesus Christ. He goes up in the Shekinah glory cloud up into heaven, and they are gazing up there. It's a word that was very intense. They were gazing, maybe with their mouths open. And as they're staring up into heaven, necks craned, heads held back, mouths open, these two guys in white show up. They weren't even there before. And they just say, what are you doing? What are you looking up there for? And this is where I wish Luke, the historian, could have given us a little more dialogue. Like, what do you say back? (laughs) But these two angelic messengers, they send something in that why. It's kind of a rebuke, isn't it? What are you doing? You heard what he said. You heard what you're going to do. He gave you the instruction. Holy Spirit's going to fill you. You're going to be his witnesses. Get on with it. Get on with the work. Get on with what he called you to do. He made it clear he's not going to put some political kingdom into play right now, so stop even hoping for that. It's not going to happen. It's not going to make Israel great again. It's not going to turn it into some kind of objective so that you get all the revenge against your political foes. It's not going to tear down all these institutions that have been persecuting you so that you could now be in charge. He says, I'm going to give you the power to go and be a witness. And you're going to be my witnesses all over the world, so you better get at it. That's the why of the ascension. So look at the last verse here in the section. He says this. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He will come back. Why do we look forward to the return of Christ? Because there was a departure of Christ. Why did Christ have to depart and ascend? He ascended in much the same way that the Old Testament priest would ascend up to the Holy of Holies and into that place where he could then offer the perfect sacrifice before the throne of grace so that those who put their faith in him could be saved. He had to ascend in bodily form. That's why the angels say he's going to come back in the same way you saw him leave. Let me explain what that means. He's coming back as a man. He's coming back as a man. The incarnation was something that was permanent because the resurrected body, the one that he got after his crucifixion, uh, the new body, the perfect body, the body that was going to be like the bodies we're going to have in the resurrection, he still has it. He is still, he is still in a body. And he's going to return in that same body when he comes to judge the living and the dead. And so the angels want the disciples to understand that. That's what it means that he's going to come back in the same way he left. It doesn't mean that he floated up in the Shekinah glory cloud and he'll just float down in the Shekinah glory cloud. In fact, we know when he comes back, he comes back with the thunderous judgment of his righteous wrath. So this question of why, it applies to the disciples, why is this happening? It's so that you will be filled with power. You can go and take the gospel to the ends of the earth by your eyewitness. Just, Just one little note here just in case you're interested in the literature of it. 
Look what he says in verses 9 to 11, how many times he talks about looking or seeing. They were looking on, took them out of their sight, literally out of, their, out of the, where their eyes could be used. They were gazing into heaven. They were looking into heaven. He will come back in the same way you saw him go, looking, sight, gazing, looking, saw, why did Theophilus send Luke out there with a commission? It was to get eyewitness accounts of everything that happened so that he could take copious notes and produce a legitimate history that is authentic and verifiable. Let me conclude by turning the why question around for those of you who are not Christians. So, if you're visiting today and you're not a Christian, you are welcome to be here, and we hope that you're hearing something that's instructive to you and that the gospel is clearly understood here. There's a claim that's being made on you. You've got to actually make a decision today. There's a why for you as well. Why would you believe this or reject it? If you were to conclude by saying to me, well, I'm sure that back then people were way more into supernatural stuff than they are today. They were gullible and easily deceived and didn't care about facts. So whatever was written, they would have believed. That would be a really arrogant and actually wrong conclusion. In fact, people were just as concerned about authenticity back then as we are today. They were just as reasoning and rational as we are. Also, you would have to contend with the fact that this gospel witness has succeeded in becoming a global reality. The spread of Christianity around the entire world is a historic reality that no one can deny. There were lots of other movements in those days that were trying to raise up so-called messiahs to overthrow the government. But when those leaders died off, none of their followers claimed that they had come back to life. In those days, when your leader died off, you had to get a new movement or a new leader. Only the Christians had said that our leader died and rose from the dead and were willing to put their own lives on the line. In fact, many of them did to spread that gospel as their witness around the world. So you might not agree with the witnesses. You might not believe that they are trustworthy, but you can't deny the reality that their message has spread into this global phenomenon. So the why for you, if you're an unbeliever, is why are you still resisting? Scripture doesn't ask you to check your brain at the door. It doesn't ask you to believe in something irrational. In fact, I think even Theophilus was a very wealthy, intelligent, rational person who wanted to use his mind and his means to commission a work that would make somebody like him utterly and completely secure in his knowledge that what he believed was true. And I would submit that to you today as well. You know, the greatest glory of the ascension is this. Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. That just means to the power on high, the authority over the universe. He says that to his disciples at the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me. And his ascension means that he now serves not only as king, but also as judge. 
Back in the day when this was written, it's very different than it is for us today. So just in case you've forgotten, we have division of powers in this country. So, so we have a legislative branch, we have an executive branch, we have a judicial branch. And the reason for that is one is supposed to keep the other in check. We don't want to have any one with too much power and authority. Well, back then, all you had were kings. All you had were emperors. All you had were rulers. And the emperor was the king. He was the judge. He was the lawmaker. And you know what? So is God. Heaven is not a democracy. And in heaven, there are no division of powers. In heaven, there are no checks and balances. There is infinite authority wed to infinite holiness. And because infinite authority holding infinite holiness demands infinite justice, you have to have somebody who could ascend and invite themselves back into the very courtroom of heaven and be accepted by God on the basis of their intrinsic holiness and divinity. But if they're going to stand before the judge on behalf of man as an advocate, they also must be entirely man. And if they're going to be entirely man, they have to be entirely and fully and completely obedient to the law of God. And that's what you have in Christ. Here he is, truly God, truly man, ascended now, so that when the very justice of a holy and a righteous God turns against sinners, as it should, Christ is there as our advocate. And his advocacy is not something that we cherish because he's a really good attorney who is able to get us off. Some people are looking for a really good attorney so that they can get you off, so that they can make the jury believe you didn't do it. That is not what Jesus is. That's not how his advocacy is. He is also not a well-connected politician who through diplomatic back channels can get the Father to back off from dropping the nukes of divine wrath upon us. Instead, he is the advocate who became us, lived perfect lives in the eyes of God according to his law, and then gave himself up so that his perfect righteousness could be given to us in exchange for our sin. And so, brothers and sisters, be reminded that if you are a Christian, the advocacy you have today in Christ is not an advocacy that is asking for mercy. Christ doesn't need mercy. He's asking for justice. He says, by his own word, as a response to his own righteous wrath, that what I demand is justice. Justice because God cannot forego justice to give mercy, but because God has already given mercy in Christ, treated him the way that he should have treated us, he can treat us by just law the way that he would have treated Christ. 
That is why John says that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He is both faithful, yes, merciful, and just. It's in perfect justice. He doesn't let anybody off the hook. He doesn't let anybody off the cross because he put Christ on the cross instead. And anyone who is in him, therefore, is safe. Because he has done all things perfectly. Rose from the dead. And then ascended back into that place where he pleads his blood as a perfect priest offering a perfect sacrifice once and for all for those who are in him. The ascension made that possible. The kingdom is his and all authority is his and it is spreading through his witnesses around the globe to this day. And what that means for us is that we either should be prayerfully and by the power of the Holy Spirit getting after it being able to, with boldness, declare and testify to the truth of the gospel. And if you haven't believed it yet, here's your invitation. The evidence has been presented. The decision is yours. But what you do with that will have the effect of guaranteeing forever your eternal destiny. So it's not a matter to be taken lightly.